Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are resetting the NBA Finals after the Bucks tie the series at two games apiece, plus expectations and predictions ahead of the second half of the MLB season, and is there concern about Team USA men's basketball in their exhibition performances? It's episode 31 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. And we are live here on Thursday, July 15, 2021. Welcome to the 31st episode of Let Me Speak. It's been absolutely crazy. I'm still getting wedding post vibes, still a little bit crazy, but we're still getting back into the thick of things. Summer's heating up. It's a little sticky out there right now, a little hot, but we're making the best of it. And so is the sports world, because normally, I was telling my dad this a few days ago, that normally at this time, we'd only be worrying about baseball. Baseball's the only thing, but there's still so much going on. There's the Olympics, along with baseball, the NBA's still going, and that's where we're going to start, is right there in the NBA, because the finals just got a little bit more interesting after last night's Game 4 with Milwaukee sweeping both games at home, in their home court, and evening up this series at 2-2. to And I gotta say, Game 4 last night was, without a doubt, the most entertaining game of this Finals so far. Because it's been a lot of blowouts, a lot of one-sided affairs. Especially in the second half, those two games in Phoenix where the Suns pulled away. And then obviously in Game 3 in Milwaukee where the Bucks absolutely took control basically from start to finish but what I've been noticing in these last two games since the series shifted to Milwaukee Wisconsin is that Phoenix is in trouble with their fouling that's the biggest thing I see for the Suns right now is that foul trouble has been hurting them you look at game three DeAndre Ayton had to come out of the game with early foul trouble, which means Phoenix basically had no size. It allowed Milwaukee to attack with their big guys into the paint, the type of strategy that everyone thinks Milwaukee should be doing night after night after night instead of just chucking up threes. And then obviously last night in Game 4 with Devin Booker being in foul trouble for much of the second half, he had to sit on the bench with five fouls, which by the way, I will say, That drive by Drew Holiday, I believe, where Booker wrapped him up, that should have been a foul. He should have fouled out right then and there. And if Phoenix had won that game last night, that would be the talk of today. And today, when you look at every single sports network, podcast, etc., they would be saying that Phoenix won that game because Booker stayed in after a blatant missed call. Of a foul because that was a foul clear as day. That that might even be worse than that NFL referee during the Saints Rams NFC Championship game. 
but that's a topic for another time. Back onto the foul trouble. The foul trouble has been hurting, and Devin Booker obviously last night scoring 42 points. Most of that was limited because we, he had to sit on the bench with foul trouble. He had to sit out the first part of the third quarter, I remember, with four fouls. He goes back in, he picks up five fouls, and he's off the floor for maybe four minutes. But I got to say, even with Booker on the floor, Milwaukee was able to take over and still continue to rein in the offense, especially from Chris Middleton. I mean, Middleton, I will say, after this postseason, this particular postseason, up until that point, he has been regarded, at least what I think other people have thought, as the most underrated player in the NBA. I mean, this guy is a two-time All-Star And he is a great secondary option to the reigning two-time MVP. I mean, 40 points last night, 15 of 33, 3 of 8 from 3. He was hanging on. He was hanging on to Devin Booker. And obviously, the rest of the Milwaukee offense was struggling a little bit. Drew Holiday only put up 13 points on 4 of 20 shooting. Brooke Lopez had 14. P.J. Tucker didn't even score. He took one shot attempt. And Milwaukee ran eight guys deep. But still, they shot the ball not as good as Phoenix. Phoenix shot over 51%. Milwaukee shot 40%. But it was just that second half that allowed Milwaukee to just get back into this and really take control because the offense was there. They just... They did take more free throws, obviously, but they out-rebounded them. I think Milwaukee found the strategy to limit this Phoenix team and that sort of take DeAndre Ayton out of the equation. It kind of, in terms of scoring, in terms of the pick-and-roll, they're defending the pick-and-roll much better. Ayton still gets 17 rebounds last night, but he only scores six points. Six points. So... They might have found the key to take away Aiton off of the block and get those easy putbacks because they outscored Phoenix in the paint by eight. And, you know, as much as Milwaukee played well, I think it's more so about what Phoenix didn't do because Phoenix has struggled in Milwaukee. And you still got to remember, this is a very, very young team. You want to, you look and you say in this postseason, oh, Booker, Aiton, They've done so much more than what was expected because this is their first ever postseason. First ever postseason play. Well, I got to tell you, the NBA Finals are much different than the first round, the semis, the conference finals. It's a much bigger stage. I mean, if you saw that arena in Milwaukee, the I believe it's called the Deer District outside the arena, that's a different story. But just look at what Phoenix did last night in Game 4. 17 turnovers. 17 turnovers. That is not a Phoenix team that we're we're used to. We're used to Chris Paul cleaning it up. He had five turnovers in the game himself and only scored 10 points. Like the offense is there, but they couldn't hit their three-point shots. They didn't get to the line as much, and they just turned over the ball. That's ultimately the two things I see for Phoenix. It's foul trouble and taking care of the ball. That's ultimately what it is. Because if they clean those things up just a tad, just a tad, then they maybe could have taken that game four. Remember, they were up nine in that fourth quarter. And then here came Milwaukee with 
an explosion, an explosion. Not only that, but look at Game 3. Phoenix turned it over 15 times, okay? That's a total of 32 turnovers since they've been in Milwaukee. And I believe 10 of them were from Chris Paul. So when you look at what happened in Phoenix, I mean, they only had 9 turnovers in Game 1, which Phoenix won. And then in Game 2, they had 13. But still, those numbers, like four turnovers makes such a difference for this team. It's such it's such a difference. Because Phoenix, I ultimately picked them to win this finals in five games. That projection's basically been thrown out the window. I still think Phoenix can win this finals. And they can win two out of the next three games. But they're just going to have to clean up the turnovers. That's that's all it is. Because Milwaukee is going to hang around with them offensively. They're going to hang around. Whether it's Middleton having another great shooting night. Whether Drew Holiday picks up the slack. Or whether Giannis Antetokounmpo takes over the game like he did in Game 2 and in Game 3 where he got over 40 points. Milwaukee is going to hang around offensively with this team. But if Phoenix, I think the the beneficiary for them is that they get to go home. They get to go home and they clean things up. And there's always that myth that role players and other guys play better at home as compared to on the road. So this could have been just a little blip on the radar. Because all the home teams have won their games so far. Phoenix won their two. Milwaukee won their two. Now it's a best of three. Phoenix has two home games. Milwaukee has one. That's all Phoenix has to do is just clean up ball security. And I think if they win game five, if Phoenix wins game five, then they win the series. That's where I see this series going. Because I see Devin, I see Booker. I see Booker as someone who's going to take over this finals for Phoenix. Because look, look at what he did in the previous games. Look at what he did statistically. In in game one, Chris Paul was the leading scorer at 32. Game two, Devin Booker was the leading scorer with 31. And you also have to remember that he struggled in game three. And so you know that Devin Booker's going to put his head down and he's going to absolutely fight and take over, which he did. And the same thing has to happen with Chris Paul because Chris Paul has not played well over these last two games. You know, it was 19 points in Game 3 and only 10 points in Game 4 last night. So, Chris Paul, like I like I said last week, he's going to have to match Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton has to get more involved. He has to limit the foul trouble and stay on the floor because Phoenix doesn't have any other size. You know, they're going to Torrey Craig and Cam Johnson for small ball, you know, with five guys on the floor. That basically means what? Jay Crowder's going to be your center? When you have guys like Antetokounmpo and Middleton and Lopez, Portis and Tucker, I don't know if I trust those guys to be your small ball center. But ultimately, I do think Phoenix is going to right the ship, and I think they're going to win this series still. I think I'll pick them in Game 5. I think they'll get that home court back. And ultimately, I kind of think that this will go seven games. I think Milwaukee is a very good home team. And there are some times, you know, again, you question 
in this postseason, the strategy from Coach Bud, Coach Mike Budenholzer, with all his defensive strategies and stuff like that. It's a lot of inconsistency. There's one thing certain you're going to get out of this Phoenix team, and that is they will bounce back. They always bounce back from these kind of losses, especially in this postseason. So I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to stick with Phoenix. I think they win this in seven games instead. I initially said five, but if I had to make a secondary pick, I would say Phoenix wins it in seven games. I think this series does go the distance, and I ultimately think Chris Paul will get that ring. It's almost like a destiny sort of thing. You know, Milwaukee, they had their fun, but what do they do when they have to go on the road, head to the Valley of the Sun, in Phoenix, Arizona, in that crazy home crowd. I mean, if Milwaukee's crowd was crazy, look back at Game 1 and Game 2. Phoenix was just as, if not more, energetic. So I will continue to ride with the Suns. But regardless of what happens, I am looking forward to a very entertaining Game 5 in the next few days. Follow that up with a very entertaining Game 6. But all I know is for certain that by this time next week, We're going to be discussing how the Phoenix Suns or the Milwaukee Bucks were able to ride out this series and win the NBA championship. can't talk about the summertime with talking about the midsummer classic i'm talking about the mlb all-star break the second half getting underway tonight with an old-fashioned rivalry between the Sox and the yanks but before we dive into the preview of the second half we got to talk about the all-star festivities because ultimately what i saw from the home run derby and in the all-star game They were so much fun to watch, and I think the MLB is in a very, very good spot. When you look at the amount of star power, the young stars that are taking over this game, you've got Shohei Otani, the the double threat who pitches and hits. You've got Vlad Guerrero Jr., the all-star MVP. You got Fernando Tatis Jr. It's not that they're just great players and that they're superstars, but their personalities are make you tune in and almost watch every single move that they make on and off the field, which is kind of what MLB was lacking. They were just lacking those big-time personalities, like a Ken Griffey Jr. who always gave you that smile, with a David Ortiz who was kind of the big poppy and just a happy, fun-loving guy. It's these characters and these personalities that are making the MLB fun again. That's ultimately what it is, because I think the MLB is in a great spot with all of these young stars, especially with the Home Run Derby and then the All-Star Game. First with the Home Run Derby, I gotta say, super entertaining, probably one of the best derbies in a long time, because I mean, you started off in that first round with Shohei Otani and Juan Soto basically going to a double overtime with a swing-off. You see Juan Soto getting three swings, and hitting all of them out of the park and out for a home run. It Unreal. Absolutely unreal. But then you have Pete Alonzo, who took this very seriously, I might add. He brought like eight different bats. He hit 35 home runs in the first round. 
And then obviously he was the defending champion. He never got to defend it last year, but he technically was the defending champion. And then, like I said, Vlad Guerrero Jr., the MVP. I got to say, I was rooting for Trey Mancini. That would have been a great story if he won that. And I did say last week, if you go back, he was one of the three players that I think had the best chance. Credit, he was probably number three on my list. I will still take that victory. But, I mean, Pete Alonzo, like I said, he took it seriously. He's now a two-time champ. Joins the likes of Ken Griffey Jr., Prince Fielder, Johannes Cespedes as the only two-time champ. So, congrats to Pete Alonzo. And then, in the game itself, listening to the guys mic'd up, I gotta say, is a lot of fun to watch. Except when they're at bat. I don't need to hear Joe Buck ask every time, what pitch are you looking for here? You know, just ask him a question. Just give him a regular interview. Why not? It's the All-Star game. They're not playing for anything. They're not playing for anything. But I'm always a fan of those mic'd up moments. Always a fan, regardless of what sport it is. I love watching the mic'd up. And I don't think this is something that the MLB should continue to do in regular season games or postseason games. Just leave it for the All-Star game. Leave it for the All-Star game. Let the announcers talk to the players mid-game in a game that doesn't really count. Not something where they're fighting for for postseason action. But I thought the All-Star festivities in Denver were very fun to watch. And it's going to make me pay attention even more to the MLB with this upcoming second half. Which, speaking of the second half, you know, there are a couple predictions and some things that I think could happen. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they happen. I'm not going to say they are going to happen. But it's something I think you have to take into consideration, okay? The first thing that you might have to take consideration into is that the Tampa Bay Rays, the defending champions of the American League, will overtake the Red Sox for that lead in the AL East. You look at where the standings are right now. The Rays are a game and a half behind the Red Sox. Ultimately, if they keep winning, they will turn this into a two-team race. And ultimately, this weekend series between the Sox and Yanks will decide if it becomes a three-team or a four-team race. Because if the Yankees are able... If the Yankees get swept by the Red Sox again, that means they're 46-46. and And everyone would say, it's time for you guys to be sellers. You got no chance to come back. But I think the key for Tampa is to find their consistency. They have to find consistency. Because... Just listen to these kind of stretches that they've been on basically since mid-May. They had that stretch in May where they won 17 out of their last 18 games. That was in May. And then from mid-June on, this is the stretch that they've been on outside of their first half finale on Sunday. They lost seven in a row. They won four in a row. They lost five in a row and won six in a row. So it's that consistency that has to be sustained. You know, it can't be a lot of this back and forth, back and forth between Tampa. Because if they continue to have stretches like that, even if the Red Sox play like 500 baseball, they'll still be able to win the division, I think. But Tampa, they they have the bats. I think they can do it. Remember, like I said, these are the defending American League champions. You've got Mike Zanino, who was an all-star, leading all catchers in home runs. You've got a great young talent in Randy Rosarena. You know, this is this is a willful team, you know. It's one of those teams where it might be hard to name a couple guys off the top of their head. 
but Kevin Cash has got these guys ready to go, ready to play. Many thought they might take a step back, and it was just a fluke year because it was a shortened season. That is not the case with this Tampa team. They've got the talent, and I would not be surprised because the Red Sox, they have their struggles, which we will talk about in our Let's Get Local segment. The Red Sox might have their struggles, and Tampa will be right there to pounce and win that AL East once again. So I would not be surprised to see the Rays overtake the Red Sox at some point in the second half. Now, the second one, I would say, might be a little bit out there, might be a little bit of a stretch, but the Los Angeles Angels will fight their way to the wild card race. Now, obviously, the the preset on this is that right now they're sitting basically mid-pack, five and a half games out of the Oakland Athletics. So right now it's Tampa, Oakland, followed by Seattle, Toronto, Cleveland, New York, and then the Angels. Now, with this team, I think the offense is great. I think they have a lot of great talent, even without Mike Trout in the lineup. You put Mike Trout in the lineup, you have their other all-star, Jared Walsh. You have Anthony Rendon, Jose Iglesias, David Fletcher, and then, of course, you have your superstar, Shohei Otani, okay? And the best thing for the MLB is to get Otani in the postseason. You don't want his talents wasted on the LA Angels like you've done for multiple years about Mike Trout. Okay, so this offense is great. I think they're a great offense, but their pitching is just so god dang awful. They are so awful. Absolute garbage. They're 26th in the MLB right now in ERA with a 4.90 team ERA. And really, everyone outside of Shohei Otani has just been pitching horrible, horrible for this team. Dylan Bundy, not doing good. Not doing good at all. So, ultimately, if the Angels really want to make some moves, they're going to have to get better on the pitching end. Andrew Heaney can't have a 5.38 ERA. Bundy can't have a 6.68. Alex Cobb can't have a 4.23. I mean, like I said, it's a stretch, but who knows? Who knows that the Angels could do it. The Angels might be able to find a way, somehow, some way, pull a miracle out of their ass and find themselves in the wild card hunt. Prediction number three that I think could happen is talking about the Philadelphia Phillies. I think the Phillies are going to turn this into a two-team race in the National League East. Because you got to remember, the Braves, they're 44-45, and 45, but they just lost their superstar, Ronald Acuna Jr., to ACL. The Nationals aren't where they should be. The Marlins, what can you say about the Marlins? And they're only three and a half games out of the New York Mets in that league for the NL East. And it's kind of similar to the Angels. I think their offense is good, but their pitching needs some help. You know, I got to I got to watch them take on the Red Sox in that uh, first half finale in Fenway Park. And they played great. They played great. Gene Segura was great. Their all-star JT Romuto. Reese Hoskins, Bryce Harper, McCutcheon, I mean, you name it. I think they've got a good lineup. And it just takes about two weeks of good baseball for them to get right back into things. And I think they're going to really make it a dogfight for the New York Mets. The only thing, though, is that Zach Wheeler, 6-5, 2.26 ERA, and Aaron Nola, 6-5, 4.53, 
they're going to need some help in the rotation. They're going to need an extra arm in there. Really just bolster that rotation and really give the Mets a challenge if they want to make a run. That's ultimately what I see for the Phillies. Because I think I think Philadelphia is a good team. Not a great team, but a good team that, you know, they're probably the next best option outside everyone in the National League West to make that wild card jump. But it just takes one bad stretch from the Mets, one good stretch for the Phillies for the standings to just flip-flop, basically, and see the Phillies take over in the NL East. But then speaking of that National League West, that brings me to my final prediction that I think could happen. And I think one of those teams in the West, I'm talking the Giants, the Dodgers, or the Padres, I think one of them are really going to separate themselves in that division. Because right now, the Giants lead two games over the Dodgers and six games over the Padres. You have to think that the Dodgers are somehow going to find their mojo. San Francisco might take a step back. I still think they can finish second. They can finish second in that division. But I think the Dodgers, you know, they're they're the Dodgers. What else are you going to say about them? I think they'll find a way to get that lead in the NL West and they'll find themselves back on top of that division. Because, I mean, come on. They got weapons aplenty. Aplenty about that. And the Giants, you know, they had some great pitching. But you have to think in the regular season, it can't be sustained through a whole 162 games. It just can't. I still like the Giants as a team. And I think they could be a real factor in the postseason if they can get out of the single elimination wildcard game. But ultimately, I think the Dodgers are going to find their way back atop that division but you know the second half of the season is just about to get underway there's still going to be a whole two and a half months of baseball to play so that just means anything in the MLB can happen Next up, we move back to basketball, but we got to talk about sort of the headline so far in the basketball world, and that is Team USA not being as dominant as they once were. They've been struggling in their exhibitions against Nigeria and Australia, and then in a game against Argentina, which they won, but it's just not looking like Team USA of the past. You know, they used to dominate these teams, and now... They're dropping these games, and you have to wonder, is there something deeper about this team, or is this just a little fluke? And it's this discussion that is the subject of our topic, once again, we bring up, known as Hot Takes. Oh, hot, 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 Now, in their first three games of the exhibition so far, they've lost to Nigeria, they've lost to Australia, and they won against Argentina, okay? They're one and two so far. And in exhibition games of the past, going back to when NBA players could be starting back into it, you know, going back to like 1992, I want to say that Team USA hasn't lost an exhibition game at all. I don't think they've lost anything at all. You know, they've had dominant performances against a team like Nigeria. I think they won by like over 50 the last time they played them. And then Australia, they beat them by like 40 or something like that in the past. You know, I'll have to look at the numbers to 
get legitimate right there. But you have to look at this roster, and you have to think about the guys that are on it. I mean, Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, Zach Levine, Damian Lillard, and Jason Tatum. When you look at the teams in the NBA that they're on, their squads, they're the number one priority on offense, okay? They are that top-scoring option. You saw a lot of Jason Tatum with the isolation. You see Damian Lillard making deep threes. Kevin Durant going on that massive run for Brooklyn during the postseason, okay? They need to learn how to not play hero ball and not play a bunch of bunch of isolation. It's got to be a lot of ball movement, all right? It's not just about one guy. It's finding the guy who has the hot hand and then just going with them. Everyone else just takes a step back and saying, dude, this is you. I'll be there for the outlet if you get double teamed, you know, situations like that. I don't know if these guys can do that. I don't think that they're going to be able to do that. I think they can try, but I don't know if they're going to be committed. You know, you have guys who are so ball dominant. You have Bradley Beal, who was nearly the scoring champ. You have Kevin Durant, who was basically all of Brooklyn's offense in that series against Milwaukee. Jason Tatum was the only guy standing who wasn't hurt for that Celtics team. So those guys, I don't know if they can take the step back and play team basketball. The good thing is, though, you have guys like Draymond Green, like Kevin Love, and Bam Adebayo, who sort of know their roles and know that they don't have to be the number one option on offense. They can be defenders, they can be playmakers, they can be a presence in the paint. That's a good thing, is that those guys know their role already, and they know why they were brought on that team. All right, with the other guys... You're basically saying, let's see, we've got about five or six teams in this NBA. Let's take the top scorer out of all of them and put them on the same team. We don't know if they can do that, all right? So it's still going to take a ton of time for this Team USA to really mesh and become a team and find the strategy that works. Now, obviously, it's a new coaching regime it was Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, for a long time, and now Greg Popovich. This is going to be his first Olympics as a head coach. So it's going to be a very different strategy and a very different approach. But I think Popovich is one of those guys. He's he's well-respected. I think he knows how to get a handle of his players. I don't really like how he's been treating the media with those losses, you know, just saying kind of just dismissing him saying you know we lost these are just exhibitions you know that's ultimately what I think is going to be crucial is can Greg Popovich find each player their role that's ultimately what I'm going to see can Popovich find a role for each of those 12 guys you know some of them might not even play you know on the back half 11 or 12 or some guys might have to be be 10-point scores instead of 20-point scores. It's not only the players taking that step back from what they once were, but it's also the coaching for Greg Popovich. And he's got some great assistants as well. He's got Steve Kerr. He's got Jay Wright. He's got a lot of great coaching behind him as well for his assistants. They'll all come up and they'll find a plan, hopefully. But in terms of the players, if they're going to be committed, you know, 
I don't know if they're going to do that because I think that third game against Argentina, which they won, they kind of looked themselves in the mirror saying, you know what, we can't just be lackadaisical like we have in the past with the with these games because the USA has won the last three Olympic gold medals in men's basketball. But this was a team who had LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony. You know, they had Kevin Durant as well. They had Chris Paul. They had these guys who were, you know, friends with each other and well-experienced. You don't have that with this team. It's a lot of first-time Olympians, you know, outside of maybe Kevin Love or Kevin Durant. That's ultimately what it's going to be. How are these players going to adapt to the Olympic lifestyle? You know, in these exhibitions, you know, there's a reason they're called exhibitions because they don't count. And maybe the players say, huh, it's an exhibition, so I guess I don't have to try as hard. That is not the case, especially in this era of basketball talent because basketball talent is getting better all throughout the world, all throughout the world. And Team USA is not going to be steamrolling their opponents in the past. And there's more international players who are playing or have played in the NBA more than ever, especially in this Olympics. Team Australia, who they played a few nights ago. Patty Mills, Joe Ingles, Aaron Baines, Matthew Delvadova, Matisse Thibel, and Dante Exum. They're all key points in the NBA, or they were at one point or another. And then you have to look at, you know, Team France. You know, they've got Rudy Gobert. They've got Nicolas Batum. Evan Fournier. Again, very talented NBA players. You're going to be facing Luka Doncic in Team Slovenia. You know, look at Team Nigeria. They have, I'm doing right now, eight NBA players. You know, and then finally Team Spain, Marcus Gasol. Ricky Rubio, Pau Gasol. All right, so the talent in the international world is deeper than ever. Deeper than ever. So it's not also the fact that the Team USA is struggling. It's that the international talent is getting that much better. That much better. And I don't think it's going to be easy for Team USA. I still think they're going to be able to, to right the ship, hopefully. I think these players are going to take it seriously. But, you know, there's plenty of reason to have doubt. There's plenty of reason to doubt that Team USA can do it after these exhibition performances. It's going to be, you know, maybe during that first game in the Olympics or game two in the Olympics when Olympic play gets started, you know, how do they play? Are they going to win by 40? Are they going to win by 50? Are they going to even win by... 30 like Team USA did in the past. It's hard to say, but I think there is reason to be worried. But me personally, I'll still put my confidence in Team USA to come out with the gold medal. But you know, it's a good thing that Team USA gets these exhibitions because if they were basically right in the Olympics without any time to warm up, then they would be screwed. They would have no shot at getting any kind of medal, not even the bronze. So ultimately, Team USA, you got to play some team basketball. Coach Pop and the rest of the crew, you got to find their roles and just limit the deep international talent pool. But if Team USA continues to struggle them where they do, then this could be a very interesting men's basketball tournament coming up 
during the Tokyo Olympics. to our weekly segment where we dive into the city of Boston and look at how our teams are doing. It's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And obviously the big story is the Red Sox. They start off the second half tonight, as I mentioned, Sox-Yanks in the Bronx. They kick off their second half, leaders of the AL East. And I foreshadowed it during our MLB segment in talking about the Red Sox struggles. They they struggled a little bit near the, the end of that first half I mean dropping the series in Anaheim against the Angels and then dropping a series to the Phillies at Fenway but you know they could be getting a boost starting tonight because we now know that Jaron Duran the hyped prospect down there along with Tanner Houck is getting called up and they're going to be here during the Yankees series during the four game series and I gotta say there's a lot of hype a lot of hype about Duran, especially I got to see him a little bit in spring training. I think this is a guy who, if he continue, if he is hyped up the way that people have been hyping him up and he performs the way, then he could be a key factor, not really in the starting line, but just off the bench really is, is the biggest thing. Off of the bench, having that bench depth, and you have these pinch hitters coming in because you look at his numbers during his time with Worcester in AAA this season he's batting 270 with 15 home runs and 32 RBIs and this is very important a 926 OPS a 926 OPS so ultimately ultimately I don't know if Duran is going to be you know, let, let's not set our expectations extremely high because this is going to be his first time ever in the majors. First time he's ever getting called up. You know, he never got called up during last year for a cup of coffee, anything like that. This is going to be his first time. But he's skyrocketed through single A, then double A, and now he is in triple A. And it, it's kind of a test, you know. This ultimately could be, you know, it could be like a Xander Bogarts thing during that 2013 season with the Red Sox where they won that championship. They call up Bogarts. They say, we need some help at third base. Why don't you be the guy as a young guy? And he would be hitting eighth or ninth. And, you know, depending on sometimes the lineups, you'd either throw in Will Middlebrooks or you'd throw in Steven Drew at shortstop. You know, those little ultimately interchangeable things that Alex Cora could do because he's a lefty. If you got to go lefty against lefty, you throw him in and you take – you know, Kike Hernandez out of the lineup, and you throw Duran in there if he continues to have these numbers. Obviously, it's a big, big if, big if. And then you can put him in left field, you know, playing with the monster. Or you could put him in right field and move Verdugo to center. You know, it's a lot of interchangeable things. But this offense was already, I would say, pretty deep in terms of their utility, guys. You know, with Marwin Gonzalez with Hunter Renfro, with Kike Hernandez, and Danny Santana. I think you add one more guy to that, I think that's going to be big for this offense, especially, where you can have, you don't have to have Verdugo playing every day. You don't have to have Hernandez playing every day. 
you know, just finding that consistent. And that's another thing is that the, the offense is great, but just we know the two outfielders that they're having out there. You've got Hunter Renfro and right and Alex Verdugo in center. Who is going to be your left fielder? Is going to be the thing. Obviously, you have J.D. Martinez who's going to be out there and play a little bit when he's not DHing. But if Duran, like I said, he could, he can have the numbers to what he was hyped up to be, then he could be your everyday left fielder or your everyday right fielder, and you finally figure out your your lineup, your everyday guys heading into the postseason. Because I, I think regardless of what happens in the second half, I think the Sox still make the postseason, whether that's the division of the wild card remains to be seen. But I think this this Sox team is good enough to make the postseason and go on a little bit of a postseason run. So Duran could be a key factor. He could be a key factor in this championship run. But it's going to be very interesting to see when he plays in his first game, hopefully this upcoming weekend in the Bronx. But of course, Duran's not the only one. I had mentioned Tanner Houck. He's getting called up as well. Now, he was up at the beginning of the season as well. And obviously, like I continue to say, the pitching rotation and the bullpen needs a little bit of help. They're going to be getting it, hopefully, with Chris Sale in the near future. But this is your immediate help. I don't know if he's going to be the guy to solve everything. But, you know, I'm just I'm still I'm still kind of out there because Hauk is still young. And yeah, he had a great 2020 when he had three games he pitched in, but that was the shortened season. This is a full 162, and so far in AAA when he got sent down, you know, not the greatest numbers in Worcester. Six starts, and he's 0-2 with a 5.14 ERA with the Worcester Woo Sox. So I don't know if this is going to be the guy to really bank on and say, oh, that's our fourth starter. That's our fifth starter right there because un- unless he turns things around – and pitch is great. I think at the moment, he's only like an interchangeable guy. Because this pitching rotation, you know, as much of the, as they've struggled, they've been there. They've pitched. They're, they haven't had a ton of injuries to deal with. They've had all five of these guys for the majority of the season. And so you're thinking that either how can be a steady guy in the bullpen when starters can't go a long way, or he can be that fifth starter that you can interchange with Martin Perez or Garrett Richards when they go on a struggle a little bit and you move them to the bullpen. That's ultimately what I'm thinking in Tanner Houck's case, is that he's not going to be the savior. He's not going to be the big savior. But does he help with the pitching depth? For sure. He will definitely help... And if he continues to have good numbers, then who knows? He could be a contender in that starting rotation, not only this year, but for next year as well. It's going to be a storyline to watch. But, you know, speaking of young prospects, obviously before the All-Star festivities happened, there was the MLB draft. And the Red Sox had their highest pick in a very long time. They selected number four, and they brought Marcelo Mayer, a shortstop, from East Lake High School in California. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth that I've been hearing. What we've seen from experts and rankings that this guy is the number one prospect out of all draft-eligible players. He was number one and was projected to go to Pittsburgh. 
but Pittsburgh picked a catcher. And then, obviously, I believe it was the Rangers who picked up, like, Jack Leiter. And then there was another team. I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. And then the Red Sox. So, ultimately, <coughs> I think everyone was going on the assumption of, oh, Jack Leiter is still going to be there from Vanderbilt, so the Sox are going to pick him. They definitely need some pitching. But if the top prospect is there, why not? That's ultimately a thing. Why not for this Red Sox team? Now, I still would have liked them to have a pitcher. I still would have liked to to see them maybe get that other Vanderbilt player. Uh, Rocker, I believe, is his name. He did end up going 10th overall. But, I mean, this is a good consolation. I mean, you've got a lefty hitter. You've got an infielder. And people were regarding him as the top prospect in the MLB draft. So, I I don't see anything wrong. I don't see anything wrong with this kind of of pick. I I don't see I don't see anything wrong with it. My my thing is just where is he going to fit, you know, in the developmental stage because you have to remember Xander Bogarts is only 28 years old. Okay? He's got an out he's got an opt-out clause after next season, so he'll he can opt out and be a free agent at 29 years old in 2022 but we've heard Bogart saying he likes being in Boston and I think the Red Sox the feeling's mutual and they might want to bring him back so this is either your guy after Xander Bogart he'll be your shortstop of the longer future or you could just move him to second base because second base has been the problem for the Red Sox pretty much ever since Dustin Pedroia had his injury issues. Yeah, you had Brock Holt in there, but he was more of a utility guy. And then, obviously, the issues this year, flopping back and forth from Michael Chavis to Christian Arroyo, Marwin Gonzalez. You know, if he's willing to make that move to second base, then I say do it. This could be your second baseman of the future. But I think those are the only two places at this moment you could move Mayer if you wanted to look towards the long-term future if he is this hyped prospect but like I said I would have loved to have seen them take a pitcher get either uh, rocker or lighter obviously lighter did not fall to them but this isn't a bad pick I I'm I'm not gonna pretend like I know anything about Marcelo Mayer and why he's the number one all I know is he's a shortstop he's a lefty hitter and he was ranked by experts as the number one prospect it's not a bad pick for the Red Sox to go. You get the best player available, a guy who was possibly going number one, you get him at number four. Why not do it? Why not take that chance? Why not take that chance? So that's ultimately what I see from the Red Sox. From a season standpoint in this year in 2021, I say that it's still a postseason team. I think they make the postseason. They either are going to win the division or get that first wild card spot. That's ultimately what I think. And I think their biggest test is going to be against Tampa. But you can't overlook Toronto because this Toronto team plays others tough. So that could be that could be very important. Is all these Toronto and Tampa series that they have upcoming in the second half, those are going to be the games you have to circle. And all you got to do is win 2 out of 4 or 3 out of 4. And boom, you knock out the Yankees. 
that would be so much fun if you are a Red Sox fan. But it'll be fun to see what happens in the second half starting tonight when they take on the New York Yankees. But the last thing in our Let's Get Local segment has to be the comments that former Patriot Cassius Marsh made just recently. Now, for those of you saying, who is Cassius Marsh? This is a dude who's been on nine different teams in about five seasons and only spent nine games in New England. And he does not like the style that Patriots coaches, especially Bill Belichick, had. He said at one point that you only get... uh, He had to go get his food, crush it up, put it in a cup because they didn't get any lunch breaks. Okay, this is a dude who says... It's not fun in New England. You don't get to play fun in New England. Okay? First off, who is this dude? All right? This would be more important if a guy like Tom Brady or Julian Edelman or any significant Patriot had said. This would be way more important. This is nothing. And also, duh, everyone knows you don't play or have fun when you're with New England. New England has one of the hardest work ethics among all franchises in sports in recent memory. And Bill Belichick isn't a guy who's going to try and be your best friend. You know, he'll try to he'll, he'll build a great relationship, but you guys aren't going to go to the movies in the off season. That's not the case, all right? And I love this story that uh, I believe Giants head coach Joe Judge, who was with the Patriots at the time of uh, Julian Edelman, Marsh had said comments similar, and Edelman wrote on the whiteboard, winning is fun, okay? That's how you have fun, is when you're winning, all right? Everyone knows that this isn't a fun Patriots team. This is a team that's dedicated to winning championships, and so far, so far it's worked. And, you know, New England isn't for everybody. If you want to have fun, go be a head coach in Seattle where Pete Carroll is basically best friends with everyone on the team and gets giddy about a first down like a little girl. You know, or go to Sean McVay, who's a young guy, where you can relate to him. Don't come to New England and then after playing only nine games say, oh, I didn't like it here because you barely even played. All right, so Cassius Marsh, I'm not even worried about his comments. But someone's comments I am not worried but interested about was Cam Newton. Earlier this morning, he said on one of ESPN's talk shows, he said, this year is put up or shut up. And I could not agree with him more. Because if he puts up the numbers, then he's going to continue to be the Patriots' starting quarterback. If he's going to get shut up and he struggles, that means he goes to the bench and Mac Jones gets in there. And you're stuck on the bench for the rest of your career. That's ultimately what it is. So I think Cam Newton is so right about put up or shut up time this upcoming year for him. Because if he, like I said, if he puts up, he's going to be the quarterback for this Patriots team. If he doesn't, he shuts up and sits on the bench. That's ultimately what Cam Newton thinks. And I like that he has that sort of self-reflecting thing on him. He hears all the news outlets He sees everyone talking about Mac Jones being the future. But Cam Newton wants to be the future. Don't think that for a second. He wants to be the future, and he wants to be this Patriots starting quarterback. But, I mean, there's still training camp is still a couple of weeks away, and it's only a matter of time until Cam Newton 
in his own words, either puts up or shuts up. Finally, to wrap up our show, as we always do, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And this is actually a moment I kind of foreshadowed a little bit during our MLB segment. And I did talk about the MLB draft, but there was one team in particular who had a very, let's call it a unique strategy for this upcoming MLB draft from this past Sunday. Through all of the rounds that they had, they had a very unique strategy. And so, without wasting any more time... This week's LOL Moment of the Week goes to the Los Angeles Angels. The entire organization gets this week's LOL Moment, and here is why. It is as simple as this. 20 draft picks for the LA Angels in their 2021 draft. 20 pitchers. That's right. Every single draft pick that they had in 2021 was selected on a pitcher. I mean, I did talk about pitching being an absolute struggle for this Angels team, but to have all of your picks be pitchers, that's like an NBA team, you know, that's like an NBA team drafting nothing but centers or nothing but point guards. That's like an NFL team drafting defensive linemen. That's like... The NHL drafting nothing but goalies, okay? 20 pitchers for all 20 draft picks. That's ultimately insane. That is insane. I've never seen a draft like that. I've never seen any kind of draft strategy like that before. But you also got to remember, like I mentioned, this Angels team sucks with pitching. I'll even say it right there. They suck, especially recently, including this year. Over the past three seasons, they have been over or near a 5.00 ERA. So you can clearly tell that pitching was their aspect that they wanted to get better at, both the rotation and the bullpen. But you have to think with a draft, you got to develop some kind of infielder or some kind of outfielder. I mean, look at what the, the Angels have. I mean, Mike Trout is 29. Shohei Otani is 27. You know, they're not young, young guys. You know, they could still be there for a long time. You know, David Fletcher's 27. But you have, like, Jose Iglesias. Your starting shortstop is 31. You have Jared Walsh is 27. You know, these aren't young, young guys. You know, you need a young superstar. You need a young guy that you can develop. And you can't do that with all pitchers. You can't. You just can't do that. I don't know what the Angels are doing. But then again, this was an Angels team that signed an over 30-year-old, a 30-year-old Albert Pujols to a 10-year $200 million deal. I think it was $200 million deal. But they signed him for 10 years, okay? They signed Josh Hamilton to a 5-year deal and pay him about $150 million or something like that. This is a a team that wasted $400 million on Mike Trout. I shouldn't say wasted because he's he's earned that money. But they wasted all of his good 
years. All right? Mike Trout's only been to the postseason one time. I think it's been one time, once or twice. He has not been able to showcase why he's the best 5-2 player possibly in the entire game. This is a joke franchise. This is a joke franchise. The fact that they spend all of their draft picks and all of this money on wasted guys. It it doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense. So, you know, do am I surprised that the Angels made this sort of strategy? No, not at all. Would I ever see it or ever expect it? Hell no. Who wastes all 20 draft picks? That's, let's also keep that in mind. 20 picks. 20 picks. You have some teams, you know, like in the NBA, you only get like maybe two or three. In the NFL, you get probably seven or eight or something like that. These guys had 20 chances, 20 chances to get someone other than a pitcher. And they wasted all on pitchers. Now, if, you know, maybe half of them develop into key guys that you can build for the future, then maybe we won't question it. But still, you know, you might have like 15 pitchers and five other positions, but every single pick was on an arm, a lefty arm or a righty arm. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And it's it's one of those LOLs that you're just baffled that makes you laugh. That's why the LA Angels, for taking nothing but pitchers in this year's MLB draft, lands them into this week's. LOL, moment of the week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search let me speak podcast and remember as always if you've got a point you got to get across just tell the whole world shut up and let me speak <laughs>